From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Thursday, April 19th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. The extremist who admits killing 77 people in Norway last summer tells judges he wanted to murder many more. And later, an Israeli man's controversial way of honoring his father, a Holocaust survivor, he got a tattoo replica of his father's Auschwitz number. B1367. Also crowdsourcing science through a video game. When a computer tries to solve the problem, it will always try to solve it the same way. Whereas humans, they'll have different strategies. The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, presenting Frontlines, Money, Power, and Wall Street, the origins of the financial crisis, and the drama on Wall Street and in Washington to contain the meltdown and save the economy. Tuesday, April 24th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. There were more shocking statements today in the trial of the right-wing extremist Anders Breivik in Norway. This time, Breivik told the court in Oslo that he had planned to kill more than the 77 people he murdered in the bombing and shooting rampage last July. He said he specifically wanted to kill the former Norwegian prime minister, Gru Harlem Brundtland. Covering this trial in Oslo is Martin Sanbu of the Financial Times newspaper. We spoke to you a couple of days ago at the trial, Martin, and you talked about the fact that Breivik was bragging about his killing. Sounds like today there was more boasting about his brutality. What happened? Yes, thanks for having me back. It was quite a chilling day in court. The prosecutor took Breivik through some of his alternative plans, his plans A, as he calls them, in in this very sort of technical formal language. He often speaks in a very technical way, in the third person and so on. But he talked about the things that he had originally planned to do, which included killing the former prime minister by beheading her in a plan that he said himself he was going to imitate from Al-Qaeda. He also said he had originally planned more bombs. He had planned to attack an annual conference for journalists. who he, he holds the media responsible for what he thinks is censorship of views such as his own. Uh, he had planned to attack the Labour Party conference. And he used this uh, chilling language where he said it was only his own human limitations that caused the delays that in the end forced him in his view to choose this Labour youth camp instead. What exactly did he mean by that? Well, he meant that uh, he had planned to make more than one bomb, and he thought that he would be able to do that in four weeks. Turned out it took him several months to make just one, and he was running out of money. So uh, he had thought he'd be ready in June before the summer holidays started, and he talked about all these things as practical constraints. And basically, the Uteya Labour Youth Camp was, in his words, politically most attractive target available during the summer holidays. This is a man who also, you've noted this in your stories, Martin, was a fan of video games. There's, of course, a lot of controversy about whether or not video games prompt any kind of violent action. But in this case, he had a lot of exposure, according to his own testimony, exposure to a particular video game. 
That's right. He explained to the court or to the prosecutors that he'd spent a year from 2006 to 2007 playing the video game World of Warcraft full time, 16 hours a day on average. He claimed this was pure entertainment, had nothing to do with his terrorist attacks five years later. The prosecution seems to be pushing a different story. They haven't suggested yet that this game, which is a can be a violent game, although people say it's it's not among the most violent games out there, it could have started his mental deterioration. That's also the thesis of two of the psychiatrists who examined him. He did also play a different game, uh, Modern Warfare, which he did say he had used specifically to prepare himself for the shooting operation, in his word. Last time that we spoke to you, Martin, you had noted the stunning civility of the proceedings, the kind of polite interactions between the prosecutor and the defendant. Did you see more of that today? There is more of it, although it's changed a little bit on all sides. Breivik himself, for the first time this morning, did not perform his fascist-style salute, which he has performed every morning before the proceedings start, and many of the victims and families have taken offence. But there is still an occasionally chatty tone between the prosecutors and Breivik, although it's getting quite a lot testier. You can tell that Breivik gets quite animated when he talks about technical details, about his planning, about weapons and so on. And he is much less comfortable talking about feelings. And today, the prosecutor pointed out to him that he was smiling while he was talking about some of these things. And uh, the prosecutor asked him directly, and I think this was the first time, what do you think the victims and the families feel about seeing you smile? And he immediately stopped smiling and said, well, they probably feel the natural thing. They feel horror and disgust. But what's striking about Breivik is that he needs to be asked these questions about how other people might feel. It doesn't seem to occur to him naturally. All right. Thank you. Covering the trial of Anders Sparing Breivik in Norway, Martin Sandbu for the Financial Times. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much. Israel marked Holocaust Remembrance Day today. Sirens wailed throughout the country, and people stood still for several minutes to remember the six million Jews killed during the genocide in World War II. These were public national acts of remembrance. One Israeli man, though, opted for a more personal act. The man's choice has distressed his Holocaust survivor father and sparked a family debate about a question many Israelis wrestle with. What is the right way to remember? Daniel Estrin has our story. About 15 years ago, Ron Fullman did something almost unheard of here. He walked into a tattoo parlor in downtown Tel Aviv with his father Yishayahu, a survivor of Auschwitz. And he asked the tattoo artist to take a look at the faded green numbers on the back of his dad's left arm. And then he asked him, Please do the exact replica, the exact copy of what you see on my father's hand. B1367. I remember that the guy asked several times, uh, uh, do you really want that number in your hand? Ron was sure of it. He's an independent thinker. Ron was a fighter pilot in the Israeli army, but he's also been a longtime human rights activist. He's a university physicist, but he also dabbles in art. He's raising three daughters and says he and his wife are thinking of adopting. This is the kind of guy who does what he thinks is the right thing to do. Same with the tattoo. I was 100% sure that I was doing the right thing. It was emotional. It was very pure in my heart. He says growing up, his dad never liked talking about his own experiences during the Holocaust. It took me many, many years to convince him to go back to Auschwitz and actually show his son where he was. And he remembers everything. Well, we were several thousand people. We were taking off the train. We already came in those 
striped suits, you know, like prisoners. When we came, two people were sitting at a table with a list. One was looking at the list, the other one was doing tattoos. I just remember uh, a little bit of pain, and uh, it took uh, maybe 30 seconds, and it was done. Ron is proud of his father. After the war, he became a chief scientist in Israel's agricultural ministry. He was even sent to Africa by the UN to work on its food program. When his father was in the hospital about 15 years ago, Ron thought things could take a turn for the worse, and it got him thinking. I could tell him a thousand times, Dad, I understand your pain. You have seen the most ugly side of mankind with your own eyes. But words seemed not to be enough. That's when he told his father and mother he was going to get the tattoo. We were absolutely against it. You are putting a burden on your children that has to do with the Holocaust. Yishayahu's wife, Luba, says they realized they couldn't talk him out of it. We decided... Uh... You can't fight them, join them. So we took him along. We went with him for the tattoo. I wanted to be sure that the, whatever they do with is sterilized. Listen, sometimes you want to be a witness to the crime. So. <laughs> I asked Ishayao if he could understand why his son got the tattoo. That for his son, the concentration camp tattoo is an important symbol. For me, it's not symbolic. You must, I think, realize that the situations we have been in as Holocaust survivors had many more tragic points than this thing. We were reduced to much less than numbers. It had no special importance. It was much less important than many other things that happened. The symbol of his tattoo is just that. A symbol. It can't even begin to fully represent what he went through. Symbols aren't perfect, as Ron himself discovered in the tattoo parlor. The tattoo artist messed up the number three. So you see here, there's the three with a flat head. You see that flat head? And my father has uh, a completely round three. And so when I saw that, well, it was too late to change it. I was very angry. Ron's father was angry for a different reason. He says the Holocaust should be commemorated by public ceremonies. His own family, he says, should move on. One of the duties of survivors of the Shoah is to try that the next generation will be normal. The private family approach has to bring this thing to an end at a certain generation. We are not going to carry on with those feelings. But those feelings still carry on. Ron's nine-year-old daughter asked him about the tattoo a few months ago. For the first time, he sat down with her and told her all about her grandfather's experience. Last week, Ron's 12-year-old announced she wanted the same tattoo. His response? Absolutely not. But he still believes getting the tattoo was the right decision. You know, every generation has his own idea on how the next generation should live. But eventually, the next generation chooses their own path. And at the end of the road, the two generations, hopefully come to some compromise. It's not just his dad's tattoo anymore. It's his too. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin, Tel Aviv. You can see pictures of Ron Fullman's tattoos and his father's at theworld.org. We turn next to France, where the European Parliament today approved an agreement to share airline passenger information with the United States. The U.S. has been collecting such information since just after the 9-11 attacks. But Europe has long resisted a formal deal, citing privacy concerns. The world's Jerry Haddon has more from Barcelona. 
Since 2004, anyone flying from Europe to the U.S. has had a lot of their personal information shared with the Department of Homeland Security, including names, addresses, credit card information, requests for special medical attention or special meals, even flight attendant observations, if any, about your luggage or behavior. All this info is called Passenger Name Record Data, or PNR for short. For the most part, European leaders haven't had a beef with PNR sharing itself. Take Timothy Kirkup, a conservative British member of the European Parliament. We're all aware of the need to deal with major criminality across borders and the terrorist threats. Kirkup points out that many European countries already collect passenger data on their own. He says that's helped lead to the arrest of criminals and potential terrorists. So there's evidence that, in fact, it is a helpful thing as long as it has sufficient safeguards in place. It's those safeguards, or a lack thereof, that have worried other European lawmakers for years. Dutch Member of Parliament Sophie Intvedt was still not convinced going into today's vote in Strasbourg. Beforehand, she said the deal on the table was flawed because there's nothing restricting the U.S. from using people's data for more than fighting crime and terrorism such as running customs checks and immigration checks, and uh, that is not in line with European legislation. Actually, European lawmakers voted in favor of the deal today by nearly two to one. One key, the deal now meets an important requirement of European privacy legislation. It will allow European citizens to see what information Homeland Security has on them and to correct it if it's wrong. Still, says the BBC's Imogen Folks, European lawmakers will be watching closely to see just how that process will work. Many of them remain rather concerned about whether there will be enough legal redress for European Union citizens who feel that their, that their personal information has been misused. So a yes vote, but a somewhat uneasy one. The agreement also sets limits on how long Homeland Security can hold on to the data. Before, U.S. authorities could keep files indefinitely. Now the U.S. will black out people's names and other identifying information after six months, delete entire files after 10 years for criminal suspects, and after 15 years for suspected terrorists. The Obama administration has welcomed Europe's passage of the deal. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon in Barcelona. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. By one estimate, people across the globe spend a total of three billion hours playing computer games every week. Now, that might seem like a colossal waste of time, but researchers are harnessing some of that effort to solve vexing problems in science. For instance, take a computer game developed by a pair of scientists in Canada. Ari Daniel Shapiro of our partner program NOVA reports from Montreal. Jerome Valdespool is winning. Well, this one is easy. He's playing a game he co-created with Matthew Blanchett, the guy he's competing against. I need to play more. They're both computer scientists at McGill University. The screen shows colored blocks, orange, green, blue, and purple. The point is to match up as many blocks of the same color as possible. (laughs) Completed. Completed. Yep. Jerome wins this one. 
The game's called Philo, not Philo as in the dough, but Philo, P-H-Y-L-O, having to do with the study of genetics. The game's simple to learn, and yet it helps solve a complex problem in the study of DNA. It's a problem that Guillaume Bork, a geneticist at McGill, runs into all the time. Hey, Mac, guess what you say? <laughs> At his home across town in Montreal, Bork introduces me to his rambunctious Jack Russell Terrier. So I have my dog here. His name is Mac. Even though, obviously, it's a very different animal, there's lots of things that that we share with him. Things we share biologically, that is. Both humans and dogs have two eyes, a brain, four limbs, a heart, and we also share genes. The genes aren't exactly the same between Bork and his terrier, but they're pretty close. Now, those genes make up just a small portion of our DNA. The vast majority of our DNA does not contain genes. It's, uh, it's quite a challenge to understand how it works and what it does. Some of the DNA that sits between our genes is clearly important. For instance, there are sections of DNA that control when a gene gets activated, but identifying these DNA segments is hard. So scientists look for where our genetic code matches closely with the codes of other species. If humans and dogs, for example, share a segment of DNA, it's probably doing something critical, since evolution's preserved it over millions of years. Now, finding those patterns in the DNA, that's something computers don't always do very well without eating up a lot of computing time. Humans, on the other hand, can often do a better job and more quickly. And that's where that game called Philo comes in. To understand, you might head out onto a busy street, as I did with Jerome Valdespool, the co-developer of the game. You see you have different colors in a a tree, in the grass here. We're surrounded by trees and grass and buses and buildings, and yet our brains quickly make sense of this complex array of colors and shapes. The brain is processing all this information in some coherent way. He says that's how we navigate the world. We're good at recognizing visual patterns. Looking out at a sea of cars, for example, it's simple to spot three of the same color right next to each other. For you, it seems natural. When you do it, it seems easy. It's not because it's easy. It's because you have billion years of evolution that trained you to, uh, to acquire this capacity. This is what the game relies on, our natural ability to spot visual patterns. Players click on colored blocks and move them left or right to line up blocks of the same color on different rows. Each row of blocks represents a short DNA segment from a different species. Co-creator Matthew Blanchett. When a computer tries to solve the problem, it will always try to solve it the same way, the way it has been programmed to solve it. Whereas humans, uh, because we don't tell them how to solve it, they'll have different strategies that will provide us with a variety of different solutions, some of which will turn out to be better than those found by the computer. So asking a lot of people to solve the same problem often gives the best results, and that's what Valdespool and Blanchett have done. They've crowdsourced the game. They've put it up on the web for anyone to play, and many are doing just that, about 500 people a day, the scientists say, from all over the world. Valdespool credits Philo's success to its simple and appealing design, and the fact that it's not like most other computer games, where time spent is time lost. Potentially, your game will uh, improve the data, and this data would be useful to solve a disease and save the life of someone. It's a bit uh, the long-term vision of this. 
Guillaume Bourque, the geneticist with the Jack Russell, considers the game's potential impact to be more subtle. I wouldn't expect that somebody's actually going to be with a puzzle. You know, there's going to be a a flash, uh, a bulb that's going to light up and, you know, says, well, by the way, you've solved this disease. Still, Bork admits the game holds promise for helping scientists solve real genetic problems. And co-creator Jerome Valdespool says the game offers players an unusual kind of mirror. It's like humanity is having a look at itself and a look into its genome. Even more of humanity will be able to look into its genome now that the Philo team has translated the game into Russian, Chinese, Hebrew, and several other languages. The multilingual version of the game goes live on the web this week. For Nova and the World, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro, Montreal. Funding for Ari's story came from the National Institutes of Health. You can test your wits at the game Philo and check out the Nova program Cracking Your Genetic Code. We've got links at theworld.org. Now another genetic story that involves crowdsourcing in a completely different way. You might have heard the world's Carol Zoll a few weeks ago with her story about having her DNA tested to find out more about her ancestry. Well, the story got a lot of attention from listeners, and there was one thing in particular that Carol got a lot of feedback on. Carol, what was it? Well, in my story, if you might remember, I included a recording of my grandmother that I made when I was 11 years old. And in that recording, she had told me the name of the village where she was from, which was in what is now Belarus. So here's just that bit of tape again. I was born in a country, a small place. The name, what the name was called Kastuki. What? Kastuki. So as you can hear there, Lisa, she said her village was called something like Kashuki. And she also says you couldn't find it on the map, which is true, because I never was able to find it on a map. And I mentioned this in the story, and I was kind of secretly hoping that somebody who heard it would be able to help me figure out where Kashuki was. And your little scheme worked, Carol. Yes, it did. (laughs) I, I heard from a lot of people, Lisa. And a few people in particular had Slavic language skills and were able both to listen to the tape and to read old maps in Cyrillic script. So my grandmother had also told me about another village that was seven miles away from Kashuki. And this other village started with an N, but I could never make it out on the tape. Here's what she said. So one listener told me that she was saying Navayelnia. And with that information, I was kind of able to triangulate, and I did find a village on an old map that I think is Kashuki. Where is it? Well, it's in western Belarus. It's about 40 miles northwest of a town called Baranovici. And from what I can tell on the map, there's not much left of Kashuki, if there ever was really much there. I know it was a very small place. But now that it means something to you, have you packed your bags yet? <laughs> well, if the world wants to send me, I'm ready to go. But uh, I would love to go there sometime. And at least now, if I ever do decide to try it, I'll know where to go. The world's Carol's all. And if you didn't catch her original story, go to theworld.org, where you can also find her blog post with more advice from listeners about how to track down villages in Eastern Europe. Great story. Thank you, Carol. Thanks, Lisa. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, India has successfully tested an intercontinental ballistic missile it says could reach major cities in China. India has been worried about Chinese nuclear and long-range missile capability for many years. So this is India's repost. The superpower rivalry in Asia, coming up on The World. 
The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an online experience designed to teach life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. China's rise as a world power has caused much concern here in the United States, but Americans are not the only ones who seem worried. Three, two, one, now, one, two, three, four, Today, India successfully tested an intercontinental ballistic missile. The Agni-5 could carry a nuclear warhead as far as 3,000 miles. That means it could reach a number of major Chinese cities. And that's prompting fears of an arms race between the world's two most populous countries. Rahul Bedi is India correspondent for Jane's Defense Weekly. He's now in New Delhi. Who is the potential target here? Well, the potential and only target in this case is China. Uh, India has been worried about Chinese nuclear and long-range missile capability for many years. It's also been worried about uh, Chinese missile deployments in southern China and Tibet over the missiles aimed at deep inside India, in fact, targeting uh, major Indian cities, including New Delhi. So this is India's repast, and uh, it's a feeble repast, but it's a repast which India plans to build upon. Why do you say it's feeble? I mean, if we believe at least the Times of India, it says that China shows signs of admiration and nervousness. Uh, one would think, especially if, if the intended target is China, even understands it is China, that there would be a significant amount of nervousness. Well, I don't think uh, China is nervous. Uh, China is concerned and uh, maybe minor irritation as far as the test is concerned. But China is really way, way ahead of India, not only in terms of quantity and stockpiles, but also in terms of sophisticated technologies as far as its delivery systems are concerned. China is India's main adversary, is India's main security concern. But China's main security concern, uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, is the U.S., Rahul, could you explain where the tension is coming from? Because preparing for a confrontation can lead to confrontation. Is that a risk in India launching this missile? I would like to put things in perspective for you because uh, the India-China relationship is running basically on two tracks. On one track is uh, increased uh, political, diplomatic and economic engagement. In fact, trade between the two sides is booming. It's up to roughly about $60 billion dollars. On the other side, there is an unresolved uh, boundary dispute over which the two went to war in 1962, a war in which India came off badly. And uh, the institutional memory of that defeat still remains. And there is a lot of uh, insecurity about the Chinese. So whilst the two sides are pursuing this two-track engagement, there is space in this uh, for a sort of bellicosity and uh, The bellicosity is also uh, on the part of China because it continues to make very provocative demands on India as far as territory is concerned. You, Rahul, have spent years writing about India's strategic and military issues. Do you think that there is a real chance of conflict between India and China? And if not, what's the point of a test like this? Personally, I don't think that there is any chance of a conflict between uh, India and China, but The Chinese have various other means without going to war 
to sort of intimidate India in a variety of ways. Uh, there's cyber warfare, there's economic warfare, you know, following the old Sun Tzu principle of winning a war without actually going to battle. But Indian military planners are very insecure because there is a great Chinese military buildup in Tibet. And uh, I think we will see more money spent, uh, or not only spent, but I would say wasted over the next few decades to come. That's Rahul Betty, India correspondent for Jane's Defense Weekly. He was speaking to us from New Delhi. Rahul mentioned China's cyber warfare capabilities there. Well, there's evidence that the main target of Chinese government hackers is the United States. Hackers in China are now considered among the world's best and most prolific. As the world's Mary Kay Magstead reports, that has many people in Washington trying to figure out how to stop them. This cramped little office in a hastily developed area of Beijing that still feels half rural is home to one of China's first self-described patriotic computer hackers. He talks about how it all began in college a couple of decades ago. When I take a computer class, I found an interesting thing is a computer virus. Computer virus is a small-sized program. Costing is very, very low. That's Wan Tao. He's now edging up to middle age and is, these days, a cybersecurity consultant to a large Western company. Back then, he was a student at Beijing's Zhao Tong University, known for its computer studies programs and for turning out some of China's better cyber hackers. Wan Tao found his stride as a patriotic hacker in 2001 when he was incensed that a Chinese pilot was killed while trying to thwart a U.S. spy plane. Ten years ago, I'm a angry young man. And uh, I, I think Chinese nation is a great nation, and uh, we are powerful. Uh, we, we need to be more be powerful and uh, not, not so weak. So Wan Tao assembled a group of more than 100 hackers called China Eagle Union. It defaced about 1,000 U.S. websites and put a couple of U.S. government websites under denial of service attacks. Kid stuff compared to what other Chinese hackers have gotten up to since. Alan Paller is the director of research at the Sands Institute in Washington, D.C., which does cybersecurity training. He first became aware of this new breed of cyber attack from China in 2005, when one such attack came from a server in the southern province of Guangdong. It targeted Sandia Laboratories, which, among other things, designs and tests nuclear weapons. They came into one site. They found the data that they were looking for. They hid it in areas on the disk that aren't easily found, so that if they got knocked off, they could come back and get it without leaving any evidence. They cleaned up the logs so that there was no record of their having been there, and they did all of that in under 30 minutes with no keystroke errors. And they were doing that 24 hours a day, seven days a week from 20 workstations. Which led Paller to conclude it was probably an attack by the Chinese military. Many subsequent attacks have been traced back to servers in China, including to the Beijing headquarters of the Public Security Bureau. China's official reaction to accusations the government is involved in hacking is to be affronted, as in this comment last year by Foreign Ministry spokesman Hong Lei. He said, hacking is an international problem, and China is also a victim. Anyone who suggests the government supports hacking has ulterior motives. It is true that China is also a victim of hacking, most recently by the hacker Hardcore Charlie, who poached email from the server of China Electronics Import and Export Corporation, or CEIEC. That was embarrassing for them, 
not only because the group deals in defense electronics, but also because the hackers found and made public what appeared to be stolen documents detailing deliveries of supplies to U.S. military facilities in Afghanistan. James Lewis directs the Technology and Public Policy Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. I don't burst into tears that they're doing this. I mean, there's, there is a point where you, you've gone past what's internationally acceptable, and they're well past that point. Some people get really indignant. How dare they spy on us? It's like, of course they're going to spy on us. What I get indignant about is the fact that we have been so inept in responding to it. By it, he means a massive and accelerating effort by Chinese hackers, official, unofficial, and everything in between, to steal invaluable strategic and economic data, sometimes whole industries worth, from the United States and elsewhere. Lewis leads a set of talks in war games with Chinese counterparts on cyber issues, called Track 1.5 Diplomacy. One goal is to prevent cyber attacks from escalating into military hostilities, something the Chinese don't want. They're pulled in two directions. They don't want to fight with the U.S. They like the fruits of espionage. They really get some good stuff. So they, what I detect is a really high degree of ambivalence. They like doing it. They know it's painful. So they're not at a point where they're ready to give it up, absent some kind of external pressure. President Obama has pledged to get tougher on cyber espionage and possible cyber attacks from China and elsewhere. Just last month, the administration simulated a cyber attack on New York City's power supply as a demonstration for senators considering two competing cybersecurity bills. Alan Paller says while the political dickering goes on, U.S. entities, including companies, need to defend their data, and not just the companies you'd think. He says Britain's intelligence chief knows that. The head of MI5 sent a letter to the 300 largest companies in the U.K. saying, if you're doing business with these guys, they are attacking you with exactly the same tools they're using to attack the military. And the reason they're doing it is they want your playbook. He also said they're coming after your lawyers. The lawyers often have the playbook for the company in an easier-to-find form than the company itself. If any more incentive to take preventative measures is needed, former hacker Wan Tao gives a window into how Chinese hackers think. I don't think hacker means economic crime. Uh, hacker just, uh, in, in some degree, means the truth. Wan Tao says on the Internet, information wants to be free, and information in someone's bank account or in a company's email account is just more information. That said, he did initiate a code of conduct last year, urging other hackers not to hack for profit. I ask if he thinks Chinese government information wants to be free, too, whether he ever tried to hack that. Chinese government also uh, will take this action as a computer crime. They certainly would consider it a crime, but the government may on occasion offer skilled cyber hackers a choice of doing time or working for the government. I ask Wan Tao if they ever offered him a job or if he was ever interested. No, he says, a nine-to-five job was never his thing. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstead in Beijing. This week, a random act of violence shook the Canadian city of Halifax. It happened in the early hours of Tuesday morning. There was a fight outside a bar in Halifax. A 49-year-old man named Raymond Tavel tried to break it up. That was the last thing that Tavel did. He was beaten to death by one of the men involved in the fight. Police have since arrested a suspect. What brought Raymond Tavel's story to our attention was the community reaction to his death. Tavel was a gay rights activist in Halifax. 
He helped to organize Halifax's Pride Parade. He was once the editor of Waves magazine. That's a local gay publication. Hugo Dan was a close friend. And first, we are sorry for your loss, Hugo. I wonder if you can tell us about your late friend, Raymond Tavel. Well, I can try. Um, he was extraordinarily positive and upbeat. He always tried to take any negative comment and turn it around into a positive opportunity. He was just unfailingly kind. Maybe tell us a little bit more about how you know him. I had gone to university in Halifax, but then I moved to Toronto and based myself there for 30 years. So I came back in 2004 and I wanted to reintegrate myself into the queer community and so I saw they were having an open pride committee meeting and at that time Halifax Pride was a very very small affair and so they used to have meetings at a coffee shop anybody could just drop in so I dropped in and they were all very busy and they said oh are you here for pride and I said yes and then they would all go back to doing what they were talking about and so I felt kind of ignored but Raymond was sitting right across from me very very handsome big smile on his face and and he grinned at me and reached across the table and said hi I'm Raymond I go back to that first meeting all the time because that really was him in a nutshell he was so engaging and welcoming and he was a remarkable guy. It's huge loss. You know, a lot of people feel that way in Halifax because it seems as though he touched a lot of people's lives. And yeah. there are symbols of that now. There are restaurants and stores there that have posted rainbow flags and decals yeah. to uh, honor the gay rights movement and honor Raymond at the same time. Does this surprise you? It doesn't surprise me. The neighborhood where this happened is at the north end of Halifax. It's a remarkable neighborhood. It's very vital. And uh, there's also a lot of social service agencies on there. One of those agencies, the North End Health Clinic, the executive director called up a local queer-friendly bookstore that sells rainbow memorabilia and bought out their whole stock of rainbow flags and made sure that every business on Goddard Street that wanted one would have one. And then people took that further and started a Facebook group getting people to put rainbow flags in their windows. And, and now you see them popping up all across the city. And Including on the uh, Halifax Regional Police website. It should not go unnoticed that the man who is being held right now, uh, Andre Denny, in the death of Raymond Tavel, is a man who has been institutionalized for a long period of time. There is a certain amount of compassion for this man. Tell us about that. He apparently has been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, a pretty severe mental illness. Initially, there's a lot of anger, right, when this happens. And, of course, one thinks of homophobia. Now, you can't, if somebody is that wounded in their mind, you know, and if they're influenced by homophobia, it's not really their fault so what do you hope uh, will be your friend's legacy? When you have a guy who did so much to make our city, our neighborhood, our, our country a better place to live, then you have to kind of try, want to carry that on. You want to make sure that his work doesn't stop just because he's no longer here to, to move it forward. Well, we're very happy you talked to us. Hugo Dan, close friend of Raymond Tavel. Tavel was murdered on Tuesday outside of a bar in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Can I say one, one more small thing? Sure. It's wonderful to have this opportunity to talk about his life and, and to share it. 
he was a great guy. But it's also very hard as LGBT people that we only ever seem to get on the new on the news when there's something awful has happened to us. And we're in our communities 365 days a year. It'd be great to tell positive stories about people like Raymond when they're still with us. We're glad that you told us even now. Um, and thank you for saying that. Thank you for adding that on to Hugo Dan. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. For today's GeoQuiz, we're tracking the whereabouts of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Here's your first hint. The 180-person ensemble is a long way from home. It's on tour in the Russian city we wanted to name today. Now, unlike Chicago's L trains, this city's metro cars run deep underground. They stop at stations famously decorated with marble sculptures and chandeliers. The last time the Chicago Symphony Orchestra came this way was in 1990, just before the fall of the Soviet Union. Back then, the Soviet city had fewer loaves of bread on the shelves and fewer billionaires, and it was home to the Politburo, the governing body of the Communist Party. We will give you a matter of mere seconds to ponder the answer. Well, that's it. Stop pondering. If you guess Moscow, you're correct. The Russian capital has changed a lot in the past two decades, but one thing hasn't. Classical music is as popular with Russians as ever. Here's more from the world's David Lavalley. Chicago's symphony orchestra is no stranger to Moscow, but it's been two decades since the orchestra last performed in the Russian capital. Vanessa Moss is coordinating the tour, and I reached her on her cell phone as she was making her way to the concert hall tonight. I am walking to the Great Hall of the Moscow Conservatory, and there are lots of other people walking around me and cars coming and everything. (laughs) Moss says she's noticed a lot of changes in Moscow since the last time she was there. There are lots of cars, expensive cars, and people everywhere talking on cell phones. You know, it's so different. I was on the orchestra's first trip when there was a tremendous food shortage. You know, we had to have communal meals. You would drive by bakeries and the shelves were completely empty. You would see lines for food. People wanted makeup and cigarettes, and the dollar was the almighty currency. And now there is a real consumer culture and nightlife and incredible busyness. People are living, at least in this city, a very grand life, seemingly. To appeal to these new Russians, Chicago Symphony's conductor Ricardo Muti says he's handpicked music that's near and dear to their hearts. So, for example, Symphony Number no. 5 by the great Soviet Russian composer Dmitry Shostakovich is on the program. Moss says Russians, young and old, seem more interested in classical music than most folks back home in Chicago. There is such interest. So, so people here choose a form of culture or high culture that they are interested in and they follow that throughout their lives. And classical music is an amazing part of that. You know, last night we walked past this big statue that was just erected two weeks ago for Mrs. Rostropovich, the cellist, because it's the fifth anniversary of his death and it's sort of this respect for art and culture all over the city. The Moscow concerts are seen as a way to strengthen cultural ties between Russia and the U.S. They're being sponsored by the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and the Russian Cultural Ministry. Now, if only U.S.-Russian relations would run as smoothly as last night's performance of the Shostakovich Symphony. The orchestra played so beautifully, and Muti's conducting was so full of this kind of taut 
energy that was building, 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 building throughout the piece, and it just made for a life-memorable performance. After tonight's concerts, Moss says she has lots to do, tons of luggage, oboes, cellos, and the like to get packed up and organized. The Chicago Symphony Orchestra takes the early train out of Moscow tomorrow morning en route to the next stop on their concert tour, St. Petersburg. For The World, I'm David Lavallee. And finally today, our guest DJ Tom Schnabel has somebody he wants you to meet. Tom regularly sends us his musical thoughts from station KCRW in Santa Monica. There is a British singer named Holly Cook. She has a new album out. It's eponymously titled Holly Cook. She is the daughter of Paul Cook, who was the drummer with the Sex Pistols. And like her dad, she first explored punk roots. Um, She was part of a band called The Slits. But with her solo debut album, her sound is more uh, British pop reggae. Her label, Mr. Bongo, calls her style tropical pop. The first track on Holly Cook's new album is called Milk and Honey. was a song called Milk and Honey from uh, British singer Holly Cook. Holly Cook mostly sings originals on this new album, but she does one great cover of a classic girl group uh, song. It's a very sweet, sad song originally sung by the Shangri-Las. It's called Walking in the Sand, and I particularly like the way Holly Cook interprets this classic girl group song. Holly Cook's cover version of the Shangri-La's girl group classic Walking in the Sand. I think she does a great job with it, and I also like the kind of the way the lilting kind of light reggae beat just fits this song perfectly. So she does a great job with the Shangri-La's Walking in the Sand. Seems like the Final song from Holly Cook's new album is an original called It's So Different Here. And you find the same elements that make the other songs on her new album very, very accessible, approachable, kind of in a Sade kind of way. She also is an incredible singer, something that, that I also noticed in listening to this record. She can sing high notes flawlessly. The musicians are acoustic musicians, and they just get it right. So it's a, it's a successful debut if there ever was one.
British singer Holly Cook introduced to us by KCRW music programmer Tom Schnabel. You can find the video for Holly Cook's song Body Beat and check out more of Tom's music picks for us at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Lisa Mullins. We're back tomorrow. This afternoon we fall asleep the people men and us will be on the boats at sunrise Watch the light the lies they teach me much I could not tell you but until you've seen my eyes Women walk in the shade with water jars The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.